Welcome to the Music Taz podcast. My name is Keith Deverell, and I'll be introducing the next series of episodes. I begin today by acknowledging the Palawa Pakana people of Luchawita, Tasmania, and their connections to land, sea, and community. And I pay my respect to their elders past, present, and emerging. And I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people across the nation. The Music Taz podcast gives voice to the music industry of Luchawita, Tasmania through conversations, chats and interviews with and between people in our music industry. At Music Taz, we hold a strong belief that within our wonderful island lies a sea of knowledge and experience that when shared can educate, inspire and promote our music and our industry. The Music Taz podcast is gratefully supported by Arts Tasmania. In this episode, we talk to Beck Tilly. Beck is a singer and vocal coach. Beck's aim is that you'll become better friends with your voice. This conversation discusses the benefits of singing and being creative from a cultural, personal and health perspective. We also discuss how modern society impedes our ability to play and feel comfortable with our voices. Beck also discusses different techniques for teaching singing beyond traditional music theory. Beck. Hello. Hey, how are you? Good. You're a s- not a singing teacher. <laughs> this, that could be one of the things that you could use to describe what I do. I do a use the term voice coach or vocal coach a little more. Um, that's primarily because, and and I, distru- I describe the people that I work with as my clients rather than my students. And to me, that comes from a sense of that it's a collaborative relationship. I'm, I'm not a fan of like hierarchies. I'm not a fan of traditional education structures. So when I'm working with people, I don't think of it as like, I am the expert who has all of this information, which I am going to divulge to you. And it's your privilege to be here. Um, it's we're working together and exploring what we can discover. The coach that, you know, I incorporate a lot of practices into what I do. Like it's not just about singing. You know, I also work with speech. I incorporate kind of coaching practices, like working on mindset type of stuff. And yeah, there's a, there's a broad range of stuff that goes into my approach. So I feel that singing teacher is one of my titles, but I like voice coach better. Mm. And so when you teach and you say it's a collaborative process, do you find yourself obviously learning from your, Mm. uh, not students, (laughs) clients, uh, clients, (laughs) sorry. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. I've heard other people say that about all kinds of teaching, like the teacher learns more than the student really. There's so much because I work with people like such a a wide range of people. So I have mostly adults. I don't tend to work with children that much. I have a few kind of tweens and teens, but mostly adults. And I have complete beginners who come to me never having sung a note in front of anyone in their entire life, right up to professional performers working on their vocal health and their technique. So and they're all, you know, they all have different goals, different reasons for doing it, different tastes in music, different life experiences. One of the things that's really beneficial is my my listening gets broadened by the kinds of music that people introduce me to, and I try to pay that back as well. But um, yeah, I learn lots from my clients. 
this is slightly off topic. I'm always fascinated by people who listen to music they listened to when they were like teenagers or mm-hmm. something and don't continuously go and explore and find new music I think mm. anyway that's <laughs> just something I think we all do it I think it's hard to not to you have to be someone who like who actively seeks things out if you want to if you want to have a broad education in anything whether it's mm. music whether it's you know, like physical wellness or whatever your thing is, like we're more likely to seek things out that are our thing, right? So because my thing is music, it's one of my things, I'm actively, I've you know, I've got a to-listen list and I'm always trying to actively listen to new stuff, but not everybody's going to think to do that. So, you know, that's something that I like to like to give my clients listening homework. <laughs> um, not that they have to do it, but just like suggestions. And uh, yeah, and they also give me back the same yeah i suppose music's kind of my thing as well so i'm actively Mm -hmm. (laughs) hunting out Mm -hmm. different types of music so you mentioned that you don't necessarily teach in a traditional way and i'm interested in that i mean on your website you say you don't teach scales for the sake of scales Mm -hmm. and you're not a singing teacher you're a vocal coach Mm -hmm. Do you think there's any kind of boundaries for people that stops people learning music or being able mm-hmm. to sing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the there's a there's a separation in our culture. There's like an artificial separation between performer and audience, where we seem to have this perception that music and especially singing, I think, is something that you're either gifted with at birth. Like you have that magical gift talent, you know, from God or whatever you want to think of it as. And if you have that, then you should be the one on to study music and you should be the one on the stage performing. And if you don't have that, you sit in the audience and you shut your mouth and clap politely at appropriate moments, right? Mm. Which is kind of a crazy notion in comparison to a lot of other cultures in the world where music is an inherently human thing and everybody takes part in music everybody sings everybody dances and so for me I really want to work on that in our culture that's something that feels like an important part of about behind what I do um I want everybody to feel like singing is something that is an option that's available to them if they have that feeling that they want that they feel called to sing Mm -hmm. and I think particularly I'm sure this is changing. I hope this is changing. But, you know, when we look at how music is taught, you know, how it was being taught when I was growing up, when I went to piano lessons and studied classical music. And um, and then when I went to the conservatorium, I studied, we had the contemporary stream, but, you know, that was relatively recent. So we've, we've come from this tradition of like Western, like Euro Western classical music where... I mean, I'm not an expert in that, so I can't really speak to the details of that history. But my impression is that that has did at some point become quite elitist. Mm. And um, there's a lot of ego in the music world and in the singing world of, again, that I have I am the one with the great gift. I am the magical teacher. And uh, and you you have some promise because you have, quote unquote, talent. So I'm going to teach you and then you're going to work towards becoming a professional performer and that's the goal and now of course music is something that people do as a hobby 
and people take singing lessons and guitar lessons and piano lessons, not necessarily with the goal of becoming a professional performer, but just because it's enjoyable and it's beautiful and they want to have something creative in their lives and they want to have some kind of emotional and creative expression. But I think that for a lot of people, a lot of teachers, we're just teaching the way that we've been taught, you know, that's what else can we do? So you have a lot of structures of both music schools, whether that's a conservatorium or just, you know, a music school where people go to get lessons in whatever instrument they do. And, you know, even individual teachers teaching in a way which comes from that kind of structure of like, we're going to prepare you in this way for this kind of career, you know. And so for me, I really want to um, have a really playful approach to teaching voice and an exploratory kind of approach where it's like, let's explore what kind of sounds this instrument can make. And, you know, I, as I said, I work with a lot of different people, whether they're complete beginners or professional performers. And my, what informs my whole approach is kind of the same, but of course it's going to be tailored to each individual that I work with, depending on their particular goals and, and what they want to work on. I think that there's, there's something really interesting actually around this professionalism area mm. and talking, you know, thinking about other cultures, you know, mm. and more traditional cultures and things like that, which worked in a much more of a commons kind of based environment. So sharing and gifting and kind of working as a, as a community rather mm. than as an individual and, you know, the through the enlightenment and through those periods we kind of slowly built this notion of the creative genius or mm. the artistic genius mm. and for me as someone who tries to learn music or has you know there there seems like there's a convoluted uh complexity <laughs> to music theory mm. from that that we still kind of have hanging over us Mm -hmm. And I feel like, I don't know what you feel about that, but for me, I feel like there's this, there's definitely a need to break that down again so that people actually just enjoy mm -hmm. the process of making sounds. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people come to me and they say, they, they're like, I can't read music. Is that okay? And I'm like, yeah, I, I can't really read music very well. Anyway, I know, I know I did a whole degree in music. I'm not quite sure <laughs> um, how I got through it, but you know, I don't, I don't use music theory a lot in my daily life and even in my performance and, and life as a musician, I think there's definitely a place for it. There's a lot of value in it. But if you're just wanting to learn to sing for fun, there's absolutely no reason why you need to read music. And what we think of as music theory, I just read a, watched a really interesting video on this recently. It basically all came from a bunch of 18th century white dudes. Um, and, you know, there's thousands of years of music tradition beyond before that. And yeah, there's definitely some things in when I've studied music theory that I'm like, wow, this is really cool. This is really interesting. This is so fun. You know, you can use this to inform your creativity and give you more options to work with. But we absolutely should not give people the impression that you have to be able to know a lot of music theory in order to participate in music. And it seems, I mean, in, you know, years gone past, you know, the, even in the family home, people would sit around and play music and mm -hmm. not watch TV and things like that. So maybe that's another sort of space where mm. we've kind of lost things. Yeah, there's definitely a, a lack of sort of, com 
I'm not so much community, but just like casual music, casual music making. And um, I was talking about this recently with someone about the the spaces that we have available for music making and specifically for singing because that's my thing. Um, you know, we have choirs, so that's great. Like choirs are amazing. They're a really great community singing space, but not everybody necessarily wants to join a choir and sometimes the options can be limited depending on where you live like um, when I was living in Melbourne there's a lot of great choirs there like my friend runs a choir called Beyond the Bathroom Choir um, which is great and then you know there's different choirs like there's Melbourne Indie Voices there's a lot of choirs working with different kind of styles of music whereas you know maybe 10 years ago there might have been more just you know maybe classical choirs and a couple of sort of world music choirs so choirs are a great option, but there's not that much beyond that for kind of just casual music making. We think we can go to karaoke. That has its own particular culture around it as well. There's like open mics, but even that's getting a little bit towards the professional side where mm. people kind of need a certain level of capacity and confidence to be able to kind of do that. So I think it's really sad. Like every home used to have a piano, right? And now, and for me, a home is not a home without a piano. I at great expense, cart around a piano from every share house that I <laughs> moved to. Um, but uh, yeah, I would really love our culture to shift and have more, just have it be more okay to sing together and and, and have someone pull out a guitar at a party and that kind of thing. And, and that does happen at some of the parties that I go to, but then I hang out with a lot of creatives. So I think it's more likely. Um, so I'd really love to encourage more just casual music making in general. I really like that term actually i think it's great casual music making mm. and it is true i mean us it you know it feels like our society our sort of urban centers are getting more and more condensed mm. it does feel like we are losing spaces mm. and so that loss of spaces to be creative does then get taken up with mm-hmm. a more sort of professional feel or you know this kind of almost a pressure to earn money from thing, everything mm-hmm. that you do instead mm-hmm. of actually mm-hmm. just taking the joy and the value yeah. of making music. Yeah, you see that in other arts as well, like with, you know, Etsy and everything. It's like, oh, you like to make jewellery or do little paintings? Like, you should make that a side hustle. Like, or you could just continue to enjoy it, you know. Both both are options. The side hustle is a thing, isn't it? I actually can't stand that term. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, you know, when you do turn an arts profession or creative pursuit from being a hobby space to being a professional space it really does change how you actually engage with that process the Mm. enjoyment that you get and Mm. I mean there's positives and negatives in both Mm. suddenly feels like it's your work and you might not enjoy just doing it Mm -hmm. on the side Mm. which I think is a shame Mm. I've definitely known people who studied music at the conservatorium I'm not I'm not picking on the conservatorium specifically here but who studied music at a tertiary level and then just ended up hating it like it just became a chore it became really because they just had to tick all the boxes and write the essays and and you know this in- extreme level of pressure and and then they ended up just like not just giving up music and never doing it again and I think that's a real shame one of the things that you are doing is promoting a secret singing secret singing lessons secret there's singing a few lessons. there's a few secret singing things under the umbrella so yeah. i've got i've got the secret sound excursion which is um a free resource that i created and secret singing lessons is my online course that i created 
And there's also the Secret Singers Society, which is what I call the group of people. There's a, there's a Facebook group specifically, the Secret Singers Society, but um, just anyone who is, is part of this club of people who have this secret yearning desire to sing, um, I would consider them part of the Secret Singers Society. Why secret? Why do you have to, or why are we associating this word secret to singing? Or mm-hmm. Is there, you know, we've talked a little bit about people not necessarily feeling like they can express themselves or sing. So the secret thing, what's it all about? Mm-hmm. So I wanted to create secret singing lessons specifically because I know that there are a lot of people who, like I said, have that kind of desire in their heart to sing, but they wouldn't ever tell anybody that. And they wouldn't feel comfortable even singing in front of a singing teacher um, or especially in front of a singing teacher that some people would find that really daunting. And then also just the singing, you know, if you take singing lessons, then you got to practice, right? You got to like, I don't really like the word practice, but you know, you got to do your practice. And if you don't have anywhere at home with, you know, if you live with family, partner, share house people, like you are, a lot of people would be really worried about being heard. And I hear that from the people who come and work with me one-on-one um, they, there's some people who just really struggle to feel like they can fit in their practice because they're worried about other people hearing them. So when I was hearing this from people who actually ended up working with me and often people come in and they're terrified in their first couple sessions, like they are so nervous and they, and a, a big part of my job is just helping people to feel comfortable and safe to kind of explore their voice and make quote unquote mistakes and just give it a try. So I started thinking about ways that people could get in their singing time. And uh, for a lot of my clients, they do a lot of singing in the car. That's where they get a lot of their practice in because that's a time when they're kind of alone in an enclosed space and no one else can hear them. And I started thinking about, well, there are ways that we can improve, we can work on singing that are quiet or even completely silent, which I learned through some of my work, my study in sort of anatomy-based Um, vocal technique where it's about developing a sense of how things feel not just how they sound and I wanted to create something for those people who yeah don't feel comfortable to make sound in front of other people so secret singing lessons is this 12-week course and I take them it's a gradual ease from doing things completely silently that can help to improve your singing and then making very quiet sounds and and making sounds that are not we're not trying to sound good. It's not about sounding musical. It's just like, let's explore the voice. Let's explore what kind of sounds it can make as well as what it feels like to make those sounds. And then gradually easing them towards actually singing and and even improvising and, and having some fun and being playful with their voice, as well as working on the kind of the emotional and mental side of it of like, let's examine why you might feel so insecure about your voice. Like what is it that has led you to have this kind of relationship with your voice where you feel so nervous about it and kind of working on that as well. What sort of responses have you had to that, that sort of emotional mental space of why people feel like they don't, can't sing or won't sing? Mm. I've heard, this is something as well that I've heard from a lot of the people who end up working with me one-on-one as well as just people that I just meet. Like if I'm at, a party and I talk to three people and I go you know I you know it's like what do you do and I tell them about what I do and there's always one person in that group who says I've always wanted to sing but you know I'd be too nervous and so the story that I keep hearing is that a lot of people have an experience especially in their early life of someone saying something negative about their voice 
So um, Brene Brown, who is a shame and vulnerability researcher, and she's written a couple of, she had a big famous TED talk and has written a few books, and she talks about creativity scars. So a lot of people, not just with singing, but I find especially, well, maybe especially with singing, maybe just that's the stories that I hear, but a lot of people have experiences in their childhood where, you know, up to a certain point, kids are encouraged to just be creative. It's like, yeah, sure, do the thing, you know, paint with your fingers and, and, and have some fun. And then there's just, there's a point at a certain age and at a certain part of our schooling where suddenly it has to be good and you are comparing your like rainbow horse to the actual realistic horse that somebody else drew and for singing people have these experiences where a maybe a parent maybe a sibling even as they get older a partner especially like a music teacher which really breaks my heart mm-hmm. says like you know give makes fun like you know don't give up your day job or like maybe you know choir teachers music teachers in school saying maybe you should just mouth the words or let's stand you up the back or even just kicking people out of choir and it absolutely breaks my heart and it makes me so angry because I'm like, these teachers, like your job is to teach them mm-hmm. <laughs> how to sing. And, you know, maybe these teachers are not necessarily equipped to do that, but to, to so cruelly destroy a child's desire to just express themselves and be involved in music. Like, I don't, I just don't understand how we can do this to people. And it's the same in other arts as well. But I keep hearing these stories of, a parent or someone saying something cruel so that really stays with people and then they spend their whole lives going I can't sing I can't sing and then I often get people coming in at the age of like 50 or 60 who finally are going it's time to do something for me and it's time to step away from the shackles of other people's expectations or opinions about me you know at that point in life hopefully we get to the point where we're a bit more like who cares what other people think but I would love for that to not have to be something that waits until people are 50 or 60 or 70 years old to do. And then there's also like the other thing that I really hate is those reality TV singing shows because they just make a show of humiliating people, you know, people who come and have a, have a go and, and get criticized for their voice. And they're obviously just there for us to laugh at. And of course it's a whole like commodification of singing as well. And yeah, it's, there's, there's, those are the three so the the creativity scars those humiliation shows and that artificial separation i was talking about where we think people either have to be like an amazing gifted mm-hmm. professional performer or they shouldn't sing at all mm-hmm. and these are the things that i think really limit people and stop them from feeling like they have a right to sing looping that back around to this question of like why people think they can't sing or don't want to mm-hmm. i think there's something in there about vulnerability and actually expressing yourself and mm-hmm. kind of finding those emotions and things like that. And I think, you know, when you are being creative and you're doing creative things, you're putting yourself in quite a vulnerable mm. place. Yes. And people like, I think what you were saying about, you know, as an audience, it's, you know, the, the performer gives us a space to feel mm-hmm. and to experience. And maybe it's a shame that we don't have more collective spaces where we can all be vulnerable in a sort of creative sense. Yeah. It's very vulnerable to engage in any kind of creative expression, but particularly singing, like because your voice is literally a part of you and you're exposing that to other people. And especially if you've had experiences in your past where people were critical about your voice, we it's really understandable that people find this terrifying 
Because if you think about like the way that our nervous systems work, social rejection equals death. I talk, you know, because people come into me and they're like, I'm really nervous. I'm, I say, it's okay to be nervous. And if people are kind of obviously beating themselves up about the fact that they, they feel that they're nervous when they're singing in front of people, your, your brain thinks you're going to die because if you sing in front of other people and they laugh or you think that they are having some thoughts about what's going on, you know, they don't think very much of it, that's social rejection and your system experiences that as a threat to your safety because back in the day, if the tribe rejected you, you would die alone in the jungle. That's like we literally have a part of our brain that is feeling that way. So it's really understandable that singing feels very scary. It, your heart races, your palms get sweaty. And because your nervous system is responding to what it feels like, you, it feels that you're putting yourself in a dangerous situation. If we were all singing more often and if there was more creative expression, we would be more okay with that vulnerability and we're all sharing in that vulnerability and making it normal and I think that's something that's really valuable about a lot of the conversations that are starting to happen much more publicly around mental health for example and even physical health stuff people are talking about their experiences more and so it becomes more you're like oh okay I'm not the only one <laughs> I definitely encourage people to express to put themselves in situations where they feel vulnerable as long as they're actually safe and because bit by bit that will give somebody else the courage so this is you know the people who do take that courage to come to singing lessons their courage is going to inspire someone else it has a, a flow-on effect mm. so that's what i'm hoping with secret singing lessons that i encourage people who are signing up to that you know you're not just doing this for yourself even though it is really valuable to do something that's just for yourself because a lot of people have spent their whole lives just serving other people you know doing focusing on their work giving a lot to their careers, giving a lot to their family, and then come to this point where it's, it's time, time to do something for me. I want, I want to have that chance to express what's inside of me. And that's super valuable. And then also that's going to flow on to your children. If they see you being comfortable to express yourself, it's going to flow on to other people in your life who are inspired by your courage to, I don't know, get up at karaoke or join a choir. I actually sung publicly for the first time, I think just over a year ago, and it was quite... It was, it was fun awesome uh, yeah <laughs> so yeah i think that that idea of influencing and kind of showing you know showing through doing that it's okay mm -hmm. you know it's a really nice thing and i i like this secret singing <laughs> idea it's like i want it to be i'm giving them the option for it to be secret to start off with to help people feel comfortable yeah and then I want to make it not secret anymore. Yeah. Okay. No, that makes sense. But it's, I mean, essentially what, what it feels like you're doing is setting up actually a safe space mm -hmm. for people to be vulnerable yes. within their own little sphere mm -hmm. without anyone else around mm -hmm. and little tools to develop to then find that confidence to express in a more public, yeah. I suppose, setting. Yeah. Which is pretty cool. You... Um, mentioned that your teaching is trauma informed. Mm -hmm. Are you willing to put a bit of context or yeah, explain that? Yeah. So I first heard that term through someone else's work in a different area, and I thought that, I thought that was really interesting, and I wanted to look into it. So I started looking into kind of the science of trauma and doing a bit of study around that, and 
Particularly, I really enjoyed this book called Trauma Sensitive Mindfulness by David A. Trelevin, I believe his name is. And that talks about how in practices such as mindfulness, meditation, yoga, those kind of things, the facilitators will often ask you to put awareness into your body, onto your breath, that kind of thing. And for some people that can be really challenging and it can even be triggering and cause harm. So in my work, I'm also asking people to put awareness into their body and to notice how things feel. And also we're singing music and it's emotional and stuff comes up, you know, a lot of the time personal stuff comes up in my sessions with people. And I just wanted to make sure that I felt like I could take care of people and and not be doing any harm. So I've done a bit of study around trauma, around the nervous system, things like polyvagal theory, general mental health stuff. And particularly I did a a course called Trauma-Informed Facilitation, which was run by um, a psychologist in in Melbourne. I did that during lockdown uh, online. So it's just about having an understanding of how certain things can affect people's nervous systems and just giving people a lot of choice. So going... So in this exercise, we're going to focus on your breathing. If you find this overwhelming or, you you know, I just make everything optional and give people different options of things that they can focus on. Mm -hmm. And in secret singing lessons, I also have a session. One of the um, lessons is a guided nervous system regulation tools. So people can have an idea of some things that they can do if in challenging themselves, because it is, you know, you're pushing the boundaries a little bit to step out of your comfort zone and, and challenge yourself to do some things that might feel uncomfortable. So if stuff comes up or you start feeling really freaked out, I equip people at the start with here's some things that you can do to help regulate your nervous system and and help you take care of yourself in those moments. Mm. So is this, does this make up some of the science-based teaching techniques that you mentioned on your website or Um, is that? Yeah, I would, I'm specifically more talking about in that context, I'm talking more about the anatomy-based vocal technique stuff. Mm -hmm. So after I finished my degree, I discovered something called Estil voice training and uh, started studying that. And so I've been doing that for about 10 years now. And for me, it was just a radical, much more depth of understanding of the instrument that I'm working with. So all of my learning up until that point had been, there's a heavy focus on breath in the singing world. This is, you know, and again, like things are changing rapidly now. So this kind of more scientific anatomy based approach is much more common. But in my life of singing lessons, I was never really taught anything about how the voice actually worked. So it was a lot. I learned really valuable things about artistry, about how to shape a song and about performance and stage presence and musicality and that kind of thing, but not much actual vocal technique. So there were things that I felt that I was stuck with with my voice you know I I would often get the compliment that I sound like Joni Mitchell which is a beautiful compliment but I also really like funk and soul music <laughs> so I didn't want to be stuck with this one folky kind of sound I wanted to be able to also belt and make a big sound and and different kinds of sounds and the the teaching that I received up until that point just didn't help me with that so when I discovered Estelle it was like there are so many options that are available to us. We have this amazingly versatile instrument and 
you can learn to control each of the mechanisms involved in that. And in ESTL, they separate into, separated into 13 mechanisms. And you can learn to control each of those mechanisms independently. And they've, got each, they've each got their two to four different settings and all of the shades of gray in between. So you can mix and match those to create the recipe that you're looking for in the vocal quality. And that gives you the ability to sing any style of music. And there's no um, aesthetic bias. It's just like, what kind of sound do you want to make? So this is how I work with people in one-on-one. I'm not here to make them sound like my taste in music i'm like what do you want to sound like and how do you want it to feel when you do that so we work on that physical sense of like okay this is what it feels like to lift the larynx or lower the larynx or um narrow your aria sphincter <laughs> which is one of my favorite just you know words to pull out at parties can you say that again <laughs> just because it's an amazing word aria sphincter and where is that in the throat? That's um, the space between your epiglottis, which is the thing that closes over your airway when you swallow, and your arytenoid cartilages, which are at the back of the vocal folds. Mm. So, yeah, it just gives you a lot of freedom. And I'm not, I have to say that I'm not a qualified ESTIL teacher. I did the first uh, sort of certificate, which is called figure proficiency. And I, I spent a year in Melbourne studying that with some teachers there. I decided I had other priorities in terms of like working on my own music and and other kinds of study, but um, it's definitely the main thing that informs vocal the my approach to vocal technique in my teaching. Mm. There was another, there was something on your website that I thought was really interesting, and you meant you have this term where you talk about photoshopped voices. Mm. Um, I come from a visual background and a design background, so Photoshop is a tool that I first started using back in like 1991. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I'm well acquainted with it, but I've never heard it used in terms of voice. Mm -hmm. And I've, it really struck me. Mm -hmm. And then obviously you early also mentioned your sort of dislike of, you know, uh, reality TV singing shows and things like that. Mm -hmm. I know there's probably a bit of a difference, but is technology creating unreal expectations that also then adding to this space where we don't feel confident mm -hmm. to express ourselves? Yeah. Because we've gone from the genius to the now mm -hmm. this sort of f not fake, but manicured technological mm -hmm. forms. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely feel that the. I experience in my one-on-one -on -one work a lot of people comparing themselves to the singers that they're trying to sing the songs of. And I have to remind people what you hear in that recording has so much gone into it. Like I know this just from my own experience of recording some of my music, comping, so doing a, a take through, then doing a whole bunch of takes and just taking the best bit of each. There was actually a bit video of Billie Eilish that went around the internet recently talking about this, you know, like every two words, it's a new take. And what you hear at the end is just the best bit of every single line. So that's very different to hearing somebody sing live. And then also, of course, often the people that we listen to on the radio have been singing a long time. So I encourage my beginner singers to not necessarily compare themselves to Lady Gaga um, or whoever. And then of course, there's all of the technological stuff. So we all know about auto-tune, Auto-tune is a tool. I have nothing against it. But there's so much more that goes into 
the production in the studio, especially, you know, as you get higher up and especially in certain styles, like that kind of electronic pop stuff. Um, there's so many knobs and dials that have been twiddled and filters that have been applied to get the sound that you hear in the end result. And then there's mixing and mastering. And of course they're using great mi microphones. So people often experience this, you know, they record themselves <laughs> and that's always can be quite a traumatic experience. That was really challenging for me the first, like when I was in high school and my school got some recording equipment and I thought I also had a massive ego as a kid and I just thought I was the best singer in the whole world. Um, and then I heard myself recorded and I was like, I'm never singing again. That was horrendous. Like I was really, it was very challenging because what we hear on the inside of our heads when we're speaking or singing is quite different to what actually comes out, what is heard externally. Um, so there's that kind of cognitive dissonance experience that people have. And then also if people are, if my clients are recording themselves singing, it's usually just into their phone. And I'm like, that is not, you know, the best quality microphone. And you might just be listening to it back on the phone speaker. That's not the best quality speaker ever, either. So there's so many things so many layers of reasons why you should not compare yourself to what you hear in a professional recording. Mm -hmm. So I think I would, the reason I use the term Photoshop voices is because I really think that that's comparable to how we get bad body image from Photoshopped bodies in magazines, which of course is also something that's changing, which is great. But back when I was a teenager, you know, and I've been through a lot of bad body image stuff and eating disorders and things like that. And so we get that perception that our bodies should look a certain way. And I think also maybe, maybe to a lesser extent, but we also have this experience of hearing voices and going, our voices should sound like that when it's really not something that is realistic to compare yourself to. Mm. No, I totally agree. Um, I think that cognitive dissonance between what you hear <laughs> on the inside and what you hear on the outside, I find that a really fascinating thing because I hate hearing my own voice recorded. Mm. And how do you, like in terms of teaching singing or coaching voices, <laughs> is there, do you, do you talk about that at all? Mm -hmm. and, yeah. And, and is there, do you have techniques or tools or things that help people understand the difference? Yeah. So partly the, that mechanical approach that kind of, control of the different mechanisms and developing that physical sense. So what's called interoception, our sense of what we can feel on the inside of our bodies is helpful for that because we're relying not just on our ears, not just what we're hearing, but also what we're feeling internally, which is also helpful when you have a gig where you don't have very good fold back. Um, and then also I, I just talked to people about like why that is, why do our voice sounds so different on a recording apart from using crap mics and speakers. We hear when we make sound, we hear the the vibrations that are going through our skull and that we tend to pick up more lower frequencies so we think that we are darker and cooler and like this and then we hear ourselves on recording and we think that we sound like mickey mouse so yeah so i just try to explain that to people just so that they know that that's an experience that they will have if they're recording themselves and then also like over the years i had that experience too and continued to have that experience when I was sporadically recording myself. But as I have worked with my voice more, as I have spoken on recordings more and also sung on recordings more, now my perception has adjusted. So when I hear myself recorded, whether it's speaking or singing, I'm like, yep, that's what I thought I sounded like in the first place. There's not, it's not that like harsh surprise anymore. I guess I just want people to know that singing is not something that has to be inherent gift that you're born with 
the more that you play with your voice. I, I like the idea of voice as instrument and also voice as muscles. We're vocal athletes. If you think of voice as instrument, you wouldn't expect someone who's never had violin lessons to be able to play violin in tune because you have to learn like where your finger goes on the neck and how much pressure to apply and how to hold it and how to hold the bow. And the same with singing. We have these different mu muscular mechanisms and it's just a matter of like knowing how to control them. So if you can't hit a high note, it's not necessarily because you have a limited range. And if you're singing out of tune, it's not necessarily because you're tone deaf. That's probably quite an unlikely, but it's just because you don't have the, you haven't learnt the physical capacity to kind of how to access those things yet. And also just that singing is an inherently human thing and music should be for everybody. And it's, it takes a lot. You know, it is scary, but I definitely encourage people to just start playing with their voice and just explore it. And you just discover all of the sensations and the sounds. And then you start to, that's how we develop control. I think partly the reason why I took to the kind of mechanical approach, the anatomical based stuff and isolating those mechanisms is because as a kid, I was pretty strange and I made a lot of weird noises. And I just walk around the house going like, you know, just like doing silly voices. And that's how you develop vocal control is just by playing with it. So I definitely encourage everybody to just start playing. And if anyone is interested, I have a free resource, which is called the Secret Sound Excursion. So if you go to secretsinging.com, it's a guided audio journey that just guides you through some really low pressure, exploratory, non-musical sound making. And uh, also it comes with a list of secret sound making locations where you could go to do that without being heard by other people. So it's really fun and a lot of people have told me they really enjoyed it and found it even almost meditative. So I'd love to just put that out there for everybody. Awesome. Thank you. No I think problem. that's such a nice, invaluable resource. And yeah, hopefully lots of people end up finding little secret spaces to start singing. I want to make it a movement. It's just yeah. like, and then we start coming across each other in the stairwells and the car parks and on the beaches. And then it's like, oh, it's not secret anymore. Now we're all doing it. That's right. That's the goal. Yeah. What a good goal. Fantastic. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thanks um, for having me. No pleasure. Thank you. If you have enjoyed this episode, please listen to other episodes on your favorite podcasting platform or via the Music Tasmania website, musictasmania.org. Till next time, keep listening and loving Tassie music.